Welcome to a place where we combine equal parts science, technology, design, and entrepreneurship. Then we gradually stir in magic to the mixture, and you have the Perception Podcast. Join us in conversations with design heroes, inspirational thinkers, business leaders, and trailblazers across the globe. Today on the Perception Podcast, we welcome Paul Armstrong. Paul is a leading strategist, author, and speaker on the future of technology, disruption, retail innovation, media industry, social technologies, consumer technology, mobile innovation, IoT, MarTech, AdTech, startups, and the startup ecosystem. He runs the technology advisory Hereforth, where he helps clients including PwC, Coca-Cola, O2, P&G, JKR Global, and MEC understand trends and how to sensibly apply emerging technologies strategically. Paul's first book, Disruptive Technologies, offers organizations a distinct response to emerging technologies, including blockchain, artificial intelligence, nanotechnology, and other external factors, such as the sharing economy, mobile penetration, millennial workforce, aging populations that impact their business, client service, and product models. So let's start the disruption with Paul Armstrong. Hi, Paul. Welcome to the Perception Podcast. Thanks for having me. So let's start at the very beginning. Why don't you tell our listeners, where did you grow up and how did you get started on your career path? Sure. I grew up in a very sleepy town in Essex, which is in southeast England, called Billericay. Uh, I lived there with my mum, my dad, and my sister, who is three years older, Emma. She's my biggest cheerleader. Um, and I went to Lincoln University and studied psychology and comms just before I jumped over to your pond, as it were. Uh, in Los Angeles, uh, and I worked uh, for various different people all the way through um, when I sort of ended my uh, stint over there working for MySpace for a couple of roles, one of the video team and doing a bit of child protection as well. Great. So how did that get you into the world of technology? So I think dad instilled in me a love of gadgets and technology and what's next and what the potential of things are um, and that sort of thing. And um, really, I had no clue what I wanted to do when I was uh, asked, so decide your career now, go. And uh, I said, oh, well, I guess I'll do the one that helps me with the humans because there are a few of those around. And if I know how they tick, then I should be able to do anything else as well. And so that's why I did psychology. Um, and then the, the computing part of it just sort of made sense because digital was very big and it was getting bigger and I was very interested in computers uh, and computing and that sort of thing. So that's sort of how it all uh, worked out. And I was in comms to start with my career and strategy. Uh, and I just saw the power that those things could have. And when you combine them with tech and certainly when social sort of started pushing through uh, more than just grassroots, I was like, that's, a, that's an interesting area that I want to sort of be in. That's, all right. That's great. So, so how did Hereforth come into being and tell us all about what the advisory does? Sure. So um, once I finished the US, I bounced back to the UK and worked for Mindshare, where I ran a team of about 24 people, I think it was, doing social innovation. And I got the sort of bug um, then to sort of do a lot more than what um, was previously asked of. Uh, for those sorts of roles and I just wanted to go much more into the innovation sort of role and sort of bigger thinking and sort of larger strategic entities because the companies sometimes you get to work with when you're in an agency are large and immovable and that sort of thing we, we knew it, all of us around the table would know what we had to do but it was just because of the behemoth of some companies you just couldn't do it sometimes or you couldn't do it as quickly as you needed to and that sort of thing so things got a little bit stale as much as we would want to all want to around the table fix those problems you know some of them were just larger than that desk if that made sense so so um, I uh, left Mindshare 
very amicably. Love them, love those guys still. Mm -hmm. um, and um, I set up Here Force, and at its simplest, uh, simplest, uh, it's a technology advisory, emerging tech advisory. That for some people still remains Facebook advertising. Other people want to talk to me about lethal drones, blockchain, mm -hmm. nanotechnology, and that sort of stuff. And that's that's the sort of end I get out of bed for, and that sort of stuff. The social stuff still very interesting to me. You know, driving a lot of the thought and change and that's going on in the world. But um, for me, emerging technologies and specifically disruption is very interesting to me, not just the sort of theoretical, but the very practical sides of that as well. So that's a, a perfect segue to my next question. And, you know, I first reached out to you after I read your book, Disruptive Technologies, which I enjoyed immensely, by the way. So I'd love to dive into some of the topics you raised in the book. So first off, how and why has technology advanced so quickly? So I think it's advanced um, for a few reasons. Number one, need is always there. People always want to do things smarter and faster and, you know, easier and that sort of thing. And that's the ultimate crux of technology, isn't it? To make humans' lives sort of easier and that sort of element. Um, I think what's the reason why a lot of it's come on so quickly is because, number one, that it, it's, it was possible and people love to sort of go, oh, well, we've done that. Imagine where we can get to next. But then also I think um, a lot of technologies combined to create new potential and new possibilities. Mm -hmm. and um, what they call it exponential growth and that sort of area and I think that's very interesting for a lot of people as well and certainly when you start to see technologies like Facebook get to 2 billion users you kind of go that's really interesting no one's ever got anywhere close to that before what does that mean for the future of mm -hmm. that humanity communication you know and that sort of thing is it too big to fail all those sorts of questions come on and then you start to think about the other end of technology which isn't to do with necessarily social networking that, you, that really forces you to rethink the future of humanity and like why are we on earth you know and that's sort the of thing if we don't have to work doing these sorts of jobs what are the jobs of the future going to be and where does that propel us to and that's a really interesting space that I love sort of thinking about and people ask me and so sort of clients are really sort of asking um, me to sort of answer like what is the future of work what's the future in 2030 you know and that sort of stuff who's going to be out of a job yeah i mean you know that's a great argument to sort of have at the moment it's like you know robots are coming for your jobs like, yeah they're coming for the job you've got now but not the job in the future you know you're always going to have to be one step ahead it's not like you know you don't have a job and then they shoot you that, that's not the point of automation and that sort of stuff is to make you have a better life and if you can if you just change your viewpoint on that ever so slightly it's going oh great so what's the new fun job i get to do and that's the sort of exciting area that you should be pushing yourself to not thinking oh i'm old irrelevant and going to be put in the gutter that's not what automation is trying to do right and technology you know is going to bring uh, newer jobs that we don't even know exist yet so, um, yeah, so what, what would you say to uh, you know i have a a, a daughter in high school mm -hmm. and you know she's already thinking about going to college things like that and she's like you know going back and forth about uh you know what am i going to do when i graduate and then you know go off to college what do i study you know for me i'm i'm, I'm a little bit older so i knew my career path and i kind of figured it out you know when i was in college and then you know moved on to to later uh, co-found perception, but you know these kids—they they, they sit there and they're like, you know, do I be a you know, what about what if I become a lawyer? And then, well, what if uh, there's going to be the all the lawyers going to be robo -lawyers. artificial intelligence or you know robo lawyers or things like that? I don't know if that's going to happen in you know well in my lifetime, maybe in hers. But the way technology grows, sometimes I feel like it could happen overnight, and I think these kids are just. They don't know what to do, and it's a different area of uh, of thinking of what you want to do with your life than me, who's you know, you know, forty seven years old. That you know is more about where do I find a place when I graduate and you know work there the rest of my life and retire there. Whereas yes. now it's I graduate, I work somewhere, 
um, I learn some things here for three years, then I move on, and then same thing, and move on and move on. Um, you know, what's your advice to kids about the future and, and I guess, you know, uh, the jobs, so to speak, that might be relevant within, you know, um, eight to 10 years from now? So I think you mentioned a few things there that are really interesting. And I think first and foremost, it is about primarily your mindset for a lot of these things. So number one, like you said, you're going to have lots more jobs in the future than ever in previous history and that sort of thing. Once you get over that fact, you're like, that's fine. It's something I can accept and move on. You know, maybe I will stay at a job for five to six years, but you know you won't be doing the same job. Sorry, the same company, but you won't be doing the same job and that sort of thing. I would always say, um, and it's a horror, horrible uh, phrase, but being a lifelong learner is absolutely fundamental. Mm-hmm. And I would say being a lifelong flexible person is always a good thing to do as well. If you become rigid, you know, which a lot of um, older generations are used to because they didn't have the um, sense of change or the pace of change that we're seeing now, um, you, you can't blame them for having the, um, what do you call it, the... Um, uh, I'm trying to think of the word, sorry, the um, the ideas uh, that they have and the perceptions and that sort of thing, the biases and that sort of thing. They're just very different. Everybody has biases and that sort of thing. So the argument is for the people that are starting out in their careers and that sort of thing is like just keep that flexible mentality. Know that you probably won't have the same job now than you'll have in 10 years, but you will have a job in 10 years or hopefully, fingers crossed, in 10 years we'll be talking about why we won't be working so much in the future and that robots will be doing things for us that we actually don't like doing. You know, I've yet to find most people that say you know what i'd love to go back to the days when i had to go and hand pick a potato mm-hmm. you know that that exists now if you want to go and do it it'll probably be something on airbnb and that sort of stuff and you'll pay premium for it but you can definitely live that life if you want to so no one's saying you can't live lives and do things so i think you know keep that positive mindset and be positive about the future if i was to say um specifically about law uh, in particular, I definitely think there will always be a need for humans in law. You're never going to be able to roboticize or automate um, the law in its entirety because it's all about, um, what do you call it, um, perception, optics, and sort of like um, arguments and that sort of stuff. But I think a lot of the law is very functional, and that obviously can be automated. Is that, and we're seeing that a lot over here at the moment with a lot of um, legal tech startups and that sort of thing. Hmm. So what makes a specific technology disruptive? So I did a lot of research in this for the book um, because it is very contentious out there and that sort of thing. Obviously, the godfather is Clay Christensen, and he's got a great book out there called The Innovator's Dilemma, um, and he's come out swinging um, both – uh, before and after about why it's important and that sort of thing and he's obviously uh, with the Harvard Business Review um, so I urge you to read that but for me when I started reading all the research and um, science behind it and that sort of thing it came down to two things really that's about speed and totality so when something comes along and is called to be disruptive if you saw it coming if you sort of like could predict it and that sort of thing, then it's not disruptive. It means you were disrupted, but it's not necessarily disruptive technology. So if it came and it hit you from the side, absolutely. So a great example of that would be Netflix and the way that they came at um, Blockbuster because nobody saw it coming. Everyone was just like, oh, who's this little startup? It's never going to work and that sort of thing. And then all of a sudden they, they flicked the notch, they kicked it up a bit, and then they absolutely decimated um, Blockbuster. So great example of the sort of speed them. The totality one is a quite interesting one. So really what it means is if uh, something comes along and it's very similar to uh, what you do, um, is it a disruption? So the argument is no, it's not, because it hasn't added significant value or done something different um, enough in order to go, like, huh, that's really different, that's disrupting me, and that sort of thing. It can have a disruptive effect, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's disruptive, okay? So it's quite an interesting sort of like um, – 
wording of those two things and that sort of thing. But once you get sort of those two core elements down, it was like, did it happen quick? And did you see it coming? And the other one was like, actually, did it like bowl you over? If you just got nudged by something, it's not disruption. It's not disruptive. It's an annoyance. It's not disruptive. So again, once you just got those two elements down, you're, you're pretty much on the money to sort of figure out, okay, those are the things. A big one that people argue about is Uber all the time. And I go backwards and forwards on it myself. But um, Clay Christensen, and I, I urge, I, I go to more towards his argument is basically they didn't really create anything new they just did something in a bit of a different way which is create a different algorithm so it's quite an interesting sort of argument for that and there are threads on the internet which you can waste your life reading should you want but it's up to you and it doesn't really change many people's perspectives but read them if you will right so so what would you say to companies like um so for example you know we'll, we'll have uh, we'll call them department of defense companies reach out to us you know you mentioned like killer drones and, and things like that um, that want to be disruptive, but then, you know, they, they reach out to us to do some work with them. And then all of a sudden it's like working, it's like steering a aircraft carrier. It just takes forever to do anything. Yeah. So do you have clients that reach out and say, Hey, we want to do something different. We want to be disruptive. Um, and then all of a sudden it's just like, they don't really understand what they even well, want to do. It's that mindset that you talk so much about in the book. Yeah. I, th I think I think number one, it's mindset. So figuring out where they are on a spectrum of like, do you actually want to fix this or is it a badging exercise or do you just want to be here until your golden parachute opens and that sort of thing. So you have to sort of get them, figure out where they are and then figure out how to sort of move around them. The biggest thing that I always get people to do, uh, and it's in the book, is the um, decision matrix. So um, that is basically how to decide where people are feeling risky or not and that sort of thing. So literally all you do is you create a series of scenarios that are um, attached to a number, um, which is up to 30, because there are TBD, technology, behavior, and data. Each of those has a score out of 10. And for every problem, you basically rank them against it and you come up with a number. So that maximum can only ever be 30. So what you've then got to do is figure out, okay, between 30 and 25, if we get a score of that, what do we do? And they're really specific and they're basically, um, they take away red tape from people because you pre-agree everything that's going to happen. So that's, again, down to your negotiation skills and the company's willingness to do it. But once you've done that and you fight, it's almost like fighting up front, if that makes sense. And once mm -hmm. you've done that, then making future decisions can be a lot quicker and you can release a lot of money quite quickly in it. I've done that for a lot of um, clients and they've taken it on, they do it themselves, um, which is good um, because they see that sometimes they're biggest enemy is themselves um, and the amount of people that assume the company would say no to something but they just haven't heard it in the right way and the companies are not there to say no they're there to be a great company and push forward and employ more people and get make everyone happy but a lot of the times when you're in the companies it's hard to sort of see that sometimes yeah i love the quote you use in the book from uh, arthur c clark any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic a major theme here is uh, science fiction predicting science fact. Can you talk a little bit about the role science fiction has played in technologic innovation? Oh, God, yeah, you guys are, like, nailing it. I love your work. It's really, really good. Um, for me, uh, I've always been a big um, fan of Star uh, Trek versus Star Wars, and I know that's not going to get me any friends on the Internet. But um, for me, when I saw sort of like that utopian society and that sort of way of thinking and being and that sort of stuff, that made a lot of sense to me. And a lot of um, science fiction after that has gone in like either direction, hasn't it? We're either utopia and things are good, but, you know, you've got protagonists, or you go the other way where it's complete like nightmare, but you're just trying to like live and survive and that sort of stuff. And I think um, where science fiction uh, helps people move is to inspire them. 
much more than anything else. And you hear a lot of um, people like Elon Musk and um, other folks of that ilk talk a lot about the effect that it had on them and how they, their thinking processes and like where they're trying to get to and that sort of stuff. You can't always just be like, I was... Um, you know, always wondering how I could go faster on a bike and that sort of thing when it was younger. They have to be inspired, so it's the right sort of input. So I think for me, it's a real inspirational element to a lot of tech leaders and a lot of foresight and futurists of what, where they push things to, because it doesn't all just happen by magic. There are people with agendas and things like that that go on, and I think it's definitely a driving force in it. Yeah, we always talk about the science fiction feedback loop where writers and filmmakers and artists create this vision of the future that technology eventually catches up to and that then causes a ne the next generation of artists, writers, and filmmakers to inspire the next generation of technologists. And it's this endless loop of inspire, create, and repeat. I always say it's um, a relay race that never ends. Exactly. So it's quite, like, one picks up the bat and they pass it to the next one and that sort of stuff. Quite nice. So for, for those who haven't read your book yet, um, you talk about the five disruptive technologies. Can you describe a little um, from your book about what you mean by them? Sure. So, sorry, what do you mean, what I mean by disruptive technology or the five? The, the five, I'm sorry, the five. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, I'm battling a cold here. I apologize. Uh, no so problem. the five I picked are artificial intelligence, nanotechnology, 3D printing, which while I wrote the book sort of became 4D printing, but it's really 3D printing. Uh, you have holography, which colors, covers holograms like Star uh, Wars and everything like that. A bit of AR, a bit of VR. And the final one was blockchain, which I think is by far and away the most powerful technology in the book that I talk about, um, just because it's so foundational. Um, the others are somewhat here um, or on their way, but they are by no means complete with what they're doing. Hol holography, for example, is, is decades away. It's just, it's for what people's expectations are versus the reality and the physics involved, it's a way away, but it's definitely something that's coming so it's an interesting one so those, those are the five I picked and I picked them for very different reasons some because um, they were very applicable to business others because um, they would create new industries and new areas of innovation um, but for me uh, like I mentioned the one the one that really stuck out and when I did a lot of research into it and you start to see it come forward now the potential of blockchain just by far and away outweighs all the other um, interesting ones even AI to a certain extent um, although that is another area that's absolutely fascinating to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we work a lot with the automotive industry, and there's a lot of talk of uh, uh, having AI within the vehicle, you know, as, a, as an assistant, so to speak, to help you with every need possible while you're driving. Um, so it's very interesting how, you know, uh, I guess just a couple years back, it was just more about, hey, it would be cool if, and now it's, Hey, by the way, this is what we're doing, and you guys need to help us with some interesting ideas of how we can make this technology work because we're going to integrate it into the vehicles. Yeah. Um, and the Bitcoin, yeah, you know, talk a little bit about your research and the, and the Bitcoin mania because I think a lot of the listeners would love to hear a little bit more. Sure. So let's let's be clear. Blockchain is the foundational technology for Bitcoin. I get very uh, protective over people understanding those two terms. Bitcoin is um, the first uh, cryptocurrency that came out of um, blockchain, but it will not be the last. Um, it's seeing absolute um, insane growth at the moment for various different reasons. It's a very volatile market, um, but a lot of external factors are sort of coming together. So Japan um, said, yes, we love cryptocurrency and that sort of thing. Um, other people have outlawed it, like China. Um, and so there's lots 
lots of external market factors which are causing dips, peaks and troughs and that sort of stuff in it. Um, Britain is pretty bullish on it. Um, a lot of um, startups have started over here and getting very excited about it. Um, the world in general is kind of saying, this looks very familiar to us. It looks like a bubble. Uh, and I must admit, I'm on with them, but I'm also very excited about the potential of the technology regardless. And that's why I kind of try and separate them because I was like, if Bitcoin goes, don't call it blockchain. It's the foundational technology of it, but you can do so much more with blockchain because it's so foundational with regards to things like value and trust, which is key to marketing. You can have legal smart contracts. It has the potential to completely rewrite the um, future of copyright and the way the internet works with attribution of elements and that sort of stuff. It's an absolutely mind-blowing technology when you get into how intricate it is when it comes to mining and things like that for the sake of cryptocurrency but also the potential because of its infallibility thus far nothing's obviously always infallible uh to figure out that chain and that sort of stuff so it's quite interesting when you hear about people in the u.s mortgaging their houses to get into that you not only is it interesting but and also somewhat quite comedic to people over here but also you start to get a sense of like okay that's something that could be really big not necessarily bitcoin but the foundational technology of that mm -hmm. yeah i mean that's funds uh, you know on the on the stock market here that uh, that are just blowing up it's it's ridiculous the percentages just within the last not, few weeks yeah not even in the year it's it's the last few weeks are just you know mind-blowing uh, you know 20 50 percent growth the, the thing I like about it and the thing that sort of like became quite good was when people actually exposed that like, no, there are big people in there with a lot of money involved and they're the ones pushing the buttons. You're like, yeah, really? It's just like the stock market. You know, that sort of thing. It's just less regulated at the moment. So it's kind of interesting how they've all got to now sort of grow up very quickly and figure out what the next steps of uh, that world's going to be. So what is TBD? Sure. So TBD is a framework that I created when I was out in Los Angeles and um, have sort of refined it over the years. And it stands for technology, behavior and data. And it's a framework I use with clients, large or small, when they've got to make uh, two things. Number one, a uh, decision. Uh, which is other ones and the first one uh, sorry the first section in the book is all to do with decisions and how to make sure that you're making good decisions and that sort of stuff um, and the second one which is called the TBD plus compass uh, is basically how to decide what the level of investment is in that decision afterwards so they can be used separately or together um, but it's a very simple framework because I have a very simple mind <laughs> um, and uh, it's 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 very quick to pick up you can do it with a pen you don't need anything else other than that and a bit of brain uh, and the internet usually. Um, but yeah, it's a really simple way of um, creating movement, um, but also getting corporate buy-in at the senior level very easily as well. What is uh, Hereforth's formula for change and how does it differ from previous formulas? Uh, so only, only a slightly uh, tweaked, if that makes sense. But um, the change for formula came from a guy called Gleishner, who was a uh, physicist. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, that basically, oh, I'm trying to remember it now, sorry. Change comes uh, when you've got three elements, which is real dissatisfaction with um, the present, all multiplied by uh, clear vision of the future, 
divided by first practical steps. So simple sort of way of doing it. And I added one bit, which is basically the money bit, right? Which added um, to say, like, if it basically costs less than doing nothing. So, um, you know, you don't have to have that sort of end bit um, to come on and have some change. But really, it's sort of you've got to have a, an understanding that money does make the world go round or certainly does make boardrooms go round in some sort of ways as well. So for me, it was just sort of a little tweak on the end of the Gleishner um, change equation model. And sort of it, a lot of people, when they see it, go, oh, my God, yeah. That, that really is that that that's that's pretty simple but I, I know that I've got a problem there so literally sometimes you just go in you write it on a board and say let's write what problems you've got you know what is it nobody knows what the hell is happening in the industry or is it like oh god we've got six systemic problems in our um, agency or brand um, we need to fix or is it that really we just we, we know all of that and we've just got to figure out how to do it can you help us with one of those and usually it's a bit of the mix of the um, last two so they don't know where they're going or they've got no practice cool steps to sort of get there. So what are some of the techniques you advise business owners and entrepreneurs to sell through difficult concepts and new ideas? So there's a few. Um, there are some really uh, quick ones, which um, a lot of people sort of go, that's expensive for some things. And you can just leave that alone because it's a statement, not a fact. Um, you know, people's idea of expensive um, varies wildly based on their upbringing or their current financial situation. So again, it's not for you to to justify those costs it's for them to sort of figure out why you're worth the money or why it's worth spending the money on that thing um, I think there's lots of ways to uh, figure out how to get people to make better decisions when it comes to money a lot of people think that people say no um, for money just because they don't want to spend money and look like they've saved a lot of money when in fact they just haven't got the criteria to give them the money if that makes sense so half of it is about interrogating people and say like what would you do if you were in my scenario or like would you spend the money if you were in my scenario and that sort of stuff so I think um, a range is always better but understanding who you are um, what do you call it uh, talking to and figuring out why they resist um, solutions or sign off and that sort of stuff isn't uh, isn't the only thing that you've got to think about there's lots of um, areas but I think for most people it's figuring out um, what's their bias uh, towards is it making money saving money you know getting fired like what's their point that you've got to sort of like go okay that's fine but we'll make sure that doesn't happen or that does happen and then you can move forward so why do disruptive technologies and innovations scare people Oh, God, that's a great question. I think, um, you know, fear of the unknowns are, are, um, are very human traits uh, and is get built in, gets built into us at a very young and early age. And we do take that off into the um, business world. I think uncertain times obviously have a massive effect on people. You know, everyone's still got a mortgage, regardless of how well um, economically everyone's doing or politically stable the world is. Um, but also beyond that, you've got uh, companies which aren't great at talking to their employees or the vast majority of them are. So, you know, some people go a year without seeing their CEO, you know, and that sort of stuff. He might be traveling, he might just be scurried away and that sort of stuff. And you can always tell the type of company and how successful you'll be in it based on how well a very low level employee can tell me about how well the business is doing. Um, it's just a great sort of like trick that you can sort of do or a you know, idea to get a sense of how well that company's doing uh, with internal communication. If you've got a person that just doesn't understand what's going on, they're not very interested or engaged, you know, that gives you a lot of alarm signals that goes off sort of finding out how that company thinks about things and treats their employees. But also you can start to sort of get an idea of um, the areas where you've got to maybe move the needle, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, so much of it too is the fear of the unknown and um, not being comfortable with uncertainty people just resisting change in general.
Yeah, I think the, the potential for people to say no is somewhat automatic, you know, mm -hmm. because no is a safe word, right? No is, no is we just carry on as doing what we're doing and it might not get worse, you know, but if we do something, it might get, it might get worse. Right, you have there's to always a risk of failure. Yeah, always a risk of failure, but at least you found a way that doesn't work, right? And that's right. obviously a Silicon Valley thing, like fail fast, fail lots of times, you'll find one eventually. I would like to sort of say, well, maybe we could do a bit of research and maybe like negate the sort of the few, a few less failures, if that makes sense. Or maybe we'll just hit it right on the button first, you know? Uh, exactly. So for me, it's about figuring out uh, how people are comfortable with change and sort of moving them forward into uh, more open, transparent um, uh, business practices, but also mm -hmm. sort of mindsets as well. So last question, talk to us about what you see as the value of design and design thinking in today's business world and disruptive technology. Great, great subject. I really am passionate about design for a long time. Um, I work, I write for Cool Hunting. I have that sort of my creative outlet because I could never make money from doing anything design. I'm not, I'm not that good at it. But um, for me, where the future of a lot of um, services and products come from is a real deep rooted going back to basics. and like, what is the value that I'm trying to get across with this product or service? And so for me, design thinking and design sort of um, as a discipline and that sort of stuff has never been more important than it is now and then the next five years when these technologies are sort of being rooted in and sort of having services created on top of them and that sort of stuff. So for me, the design community and certainly the UX, UE, UI um, communities, they're learning as quickly as they can these new rules and new sort of um, foundations and uh, what do you call it, girders that they have to like build on that are constantly changing as well. So for me, you know, if I was in that, I would have a headache every day because I'd be like reading everything. And so seeing it from an outsider's perspective and what they all have to do, I take my hats off to each and every one of them and certainly you guys coming up with new stuff uh, you know new ways of thinking or potential new ways of thinking you know you get to sort of push bars and sort of see where it's going which is both inspiring but also that's a big responsibility as well which I don't think a lot of people in that uh, in those job roles sometimes sort of fathom they have, a, they have a, an idea of what they're doing but you know it's, it's they don't see the potential that it has to really change the future so I actually have one last question for you. Um, you know, we, we, we do a ton of research on, a, on, you know, just basic running of companies only because we've been in business now for over 16 years. And, you know, like you said, you know, it's a life of learning, um, especially when you're running a business and being able to adapt and things. So um, what's your point of view on, on companies having one specific expertise instead of doing, you know, let's say a couple of different things? So for me, that question comes down to two things. Number one, what's the industry you're in and are you sure that you're the person with the best expertise in it? And I always, nine times out of ten, you can say probably not or I'm not that confident. Some people are super confident and they'll never let anyone be better than them or they'll never stop fighting to the last breath and that sort of thing. And that's the one person that will be better than everyone else mm -hmm. nine times. So I think um, you've got to ask yourself, like, how, how sort of uh, in, invested are you in that sort of area? But also, I think the safer option and certainly the most helpful option is being more flexible. When you're flexible, you invite more perspectives in and you usually get a better answer. Sometimes people are rigid and they know what they've got to do and they, you know, just they, they know that that's what they're going to do. And you can see Elon Musk, I've mentioned him a couple of times today, and other people like um, Steve Jobs had a very clear idea of where they were going. They drive it and that sort of stuff. Um, sometimes 
that works out. Sometimes it annoys a lot of people, um, you know, and greatness is always great in hindsight and that sort of stuff. But for me, I think you've got to look at those uh, two variables that you talked about and really sort of focus on, on, okay, what's the safest bet for right now? Or am I so fully involved in this that I'll make it a success, whatever? And maybe, you know, neither of those have to be true for you to make it happen. But, um, you know, having that belief, I think, is the, is the core to it, but also somewhat a savvy business acumen at the same time. Thank you so much, Paul. This has been an incredible conversation. We, we truly enjoyed it. Where can people find you online and how can they get in touch with you? Uh, you can get in touch with me via Hereforth's website, uh, H-E-R-E-F-O-R-T-H.com, or I'm on Twitter, all the usual social platforms. Have a Google. Uh, I'm sadly all over the internet. <laughs> Perfect. Thanks again, and uh, have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. And that wraps up another episode of the Perception Podcast. As always, send any questions and comments to ask at experienceperception.com. Make sure you follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and our YouTube channel. Sign up for our weekly newsletter on our site, experienceperception.com slash contact. Lastly, if you enjoyed this podcast, please go to iTunes and write a nice review. See you on the next episode. Thank you.